This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, welcome once again to the DLR Cast, your only artisanal, 100% American made, nearly all natural, save for a couple Diet Cokes podcast, buying for fans of the mighty David Lee Roth. I'm joined, as always, by the debonair Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, wow, what's happening? Debonair. I don't think I've ever been called that. Before, I, almost went with, I almost went with delicious, but let's, you know, it's, let's. Demonic. Let's <laughs> Whatever it is, it's great as always to connect with you and talk about the latest and the greatest of the Toastmaster General of the Roth Army. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was thinking, I was thinking, looking at the date where, well, for, first off, we've got an amazing interview. Kudos to you again, where I th- folks are just going to, I think there's going to be a couple what the fuck moments when people listen to this interview. We'll, we'll tease that. That's just one tease. We'll tease that in a second. But I was just thinking too, we're looking at the calendar. We are eight weeks out yeah. from you hitting Vegas, doing five straight David Lee Ross shows. And what, two things. One, you just reminded me, and I just clearly, my you know attention-addled uh, uh, brain here, I didn't realize that, I, I just had in my head that the final show was New Year's Eve. But that's not it at all. No, that's the first show. That's the first show. <laughs> that's the first show. And we were talking about this off mic. It's not one of those things where Dave is going to be on stage at midnight going, Happy New Year. I think the show's over by 10. So <laughs> right. everything about this residency is just very unique. As you put it, Dave can't share the spotlight with New Year's, with, with New Year's Eve. Yeah, there's no special guests that we received. <laughs> well, because you know we were speculating. I just think it's it's completely far fetched. Well, maybe Alex will make an appearance. And in my head, I just thought, well, God, what a way to send it off. The if this is retirement, he. I just assumed it was a dumb assumption. But I'm like, okay, if he's gonna have any special guests, the final show is gonna be New Year's Eve. Why wouldn't you do it on the biggest night of the year? No, no, no. Al contraire, mon frere. That's the first fucking show. I mean, by what is it? What did you say? It was the thirty first? The what the is first, it? First, the fifth, the seventh, and the eighth. So January eighth is the, the last. The eighth. The eighth. Who's going to be in Vegas besides you? <laughs> a week after New Year's. Yeah, I. Why wouldn't you do it like the twenty seventh, the 29th? You know what I mean? It's like bizarre booking. I mean, I don't know what goes into it. Maybe there were they maybe had to move some things around. I don't know. Maybe Tom Jones is doing so. Who the hell knows? I don't well Tom Jones is 103, but boring though. And uh, allegedly made the best album of his career. Like Tom Jones made a folk album or two. I've read I've heard that. Yes. yes. Well before we go I don't let's not go down the Tom Jones road. But yeah we but I know we've been planning some interviews and talking I mean some a couple episodes. So as we get closer we're gonna have to do a we're gonna have to really take as we keep learning more things as this interview shows as we keep learning more things about what what and who we might see and maybe what what you might hear for these shows coming up. We'll, we're going to keep talking about it, what I'm getting at, but we'll have to do like a bigger preview thing. Eight days, whatever it is. I mean, we're going to have to have a, bit, a nice, great days? recap from you. No, Vegas is a, th- now it's a three-week trip. I mean, the I don't think I talked about this on there. If I did, I apologize for repeating myself, but summarizing right here. We booked a trip to Vegas because there's just this great travel package, uh, December 25 to 30. It was like so cheap, including the flight that you go, uh, this is a great thing. And then we we're able to talk my parents into joining us. And then Roth announces his residency. And then we got, oh, we 
it starts the 31st. We're flying home the 30th. We'll, we'll extend this trip uh, so we can see the first two shows. Then the retirement announcement comes in. He's like, uh, these are my last shows. I went, these are the last shows. I got to see him. I think I may have been intoxicated when I said that to my wife and I expected her to laugh. But she said, you're right. We should go. I'm like, oh, OK. So then you put it on the calendar. And you go, that's just about three weeks in Vegas. That's a lot. And then that is a lot. my trip to Park City, Utah, which got postponed due to COVID stuff, not my COVID, other people's COVID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they offered me trip dates, which were the two days after we were supposed to fly home from Vegas. So then I packed the Park City onto that. And then I found out my employer wanted to do its week-long retreat in January for a week in Los Angeles. So I'm waiting to hear if I'm then going from Park City, Utah to, to LA. So I don't know who's going to have a crazier January, if it's me or DLR. Jeez, dude, you're like you're freaking like a touring musician, for God's sakes. You're doing residencies in places yourself. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen in January, but the bottom line is my wife is very supportive and she said yes. Dude, you know what? Kudos to Mrs. Poutrous because I got to tell you, anybody else. So, honey, guess what? Dave just <laughs> Can we extend this trip? That's awesome. Yeah. So it was not a planned thing. We were going anyway to to Vegas, but not those dates. And most artists would kind of do like five shows in six nights or five shows in five nights, something like that. Not our hero, uh, David Lee Roth. It's a very unique thing that starts on New Year's Eve. And we are at this point where we say we don't know if there's any openers. I don't think so. We don't know no. if there's special guests. We don't know if any of the shows have a theme. I mean, if you were seeing Fish, <laughs> they, they tell you the Baker's Dozen each night is its own thing. We don't know. Um, so I also don't know anybody else who's going to these shows. Every diehard I've ever met basically went, um, no, or I hate Vegas, or I've got kids. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, so I don't know who's going to these shows either. <laughs> what'll what'll be interesting? Well, there's a couple things. One, I'm assuming, I mean, the place will be packed even if they have to paper them. But after yeah. the announcement, I think a couple, certainly New Year's Eve is completely sold out. I think they're all sold out except for a couple of marked up, quote unquote, platinum VIP Live Nation tickets. Gotcha. And that's for the yeah. way that's for the whales. Is that you know, right? The Vegas, you know, for sure. Yeah. Everything yeah. was normally priced when it first went on sale. Then they repriced the tickets. Go ahead and sue me for that libel, Live Nation. They literally turned like seventy five or eighty five dollar tickets into four hundred fifty dollar tickets. Literally. Hey, it's the law of supply and demand, man. The price will be what the market will bear. And if the market will bear a lot, the, you know, Live Nation, any company would take advantage of it. I think you just did modus tollens from like 10th grade math. Like if A implies B, B and C, then A goes to C. Probably. And then you give me about five more minutes. I might remember my high school locker combination now. Uh, <laughs> So let's get to, so speaking of, all right, so this interview, we've got, you've got Michael Musselman, drummer, for a little while with Dave. He did the Vegas dates back in 2020 and some KISS shows, and there's some great information here, including some very interesting info that made me just go, what the fuck, about regarding set lists and one song in particular. 
Thank you. Thank you. The roots of this one literally go back close to two years where I saw him live because I didn't know who was in Dave's band when I first went to see them. And then, you know, Dave says, you know, five times on stage, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Musselman, Al Estrada. And you go, oh, okay, let's follow those people on Instagram. So I started messaging Mike Musselman like, hey, uh, we should do an interview. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks. No, we should really do an interview. Yeah, okay, sure, weirdo, weird David Lee Roth fan. Uh, And then ultimately he said, yes, I think maybe I dropped the right names and or right conditions to it. But he said yes, and once we were on the line, couldn't have been nicer. I was going to say, he sounds like a super cool guy, just funny and smart and just one of those guys you're like, damn, I would love to hang out with this guy anytime and talk about anything but Van Halen and Dave or whatever. So it just seems like a cool guy. Totally. And it was interesting to hear outright how he basically got the gig due to former members of David Lee Roth's band. That's super interesting, too. And the fact that also, who was his drum teacher? Yes. Uh, do we spoil that or do you say uh, Let's just drop it there. Greg Bissonette. So as, as, as we've learned, as we just do these interviews, it's like that Dave network of musicians... There's like a couple go-to guys that he always will go to who can like Brett Tuggle, right? Yeah. Uh, and certainly Greg Bissonette. And then those guys, all right, well, we need a bass. Let's bring in Matt Bissonette. Or I know another, you know what they, it's all, I mean, it's like that in so many industries, but in particular for a guy who's so insular as Dave and that as what appears to be that completely locked down Dave organization. I mean, networking is still a big thing is, is how he finds out and gets people. And, and it's kind of interesting just as we've learned the last, you know, the last year or two and, and getting these interviews. But we've also learned as a result of this interview without spoiling anything that who the music director in the band was changed. The Mm. set list concept change, the people in the band changed a few times, the format and configuration of the band changed and also that the roots of the Vegas residency, or at least the way that Mike knew it, goes back to 2018. So it sounds like it was a year, year and a half in the making before it actually happened. Yeah. But, you know, I was just thinking, too, between this interview and then our last episode, episode 44, the interview with Rocket Rashad and his and his drummer son, Kane Rashad, we <laughs> learned a lot about how Dave does things musically and the rehearsals and just a lot of different things like that. A lot of inner working stuff. And I love always in anything, just how things work, learning how things work behind that curtain. And in, in Dave's case, it's a pretty thick, rarely unveiled curtain. It's so intriguing to me that he put this in the statement about the retirement that what was the term for doing the 70 rehearsals? A block? A block, yes. Yeah, so he's doing a block, but he's not necessarily at that block. No, exactly. That's what dawned on me too after, yeah, that, I mean, we know he doesn't do sound checks and I get that, but also I'm sure he, obviously, if it's a brand new band, he's doing some rehearsals, right? You got to get the feel and the time and all that stuff. But I mean, it, Dave, if nothing else with Dave is that that Boy Scout Maxim be prepared is his entire, you know, I mean, he is just going to work at something until he gets it. So he is always prepared to sing any Van Halen song 
And he's got his own riffs and, you know, he'll go off on little improv bits. And we've seen the way he changes melodies and lyrics. The guy does a couple different things. Uh, and we've seen that with Van Halen, too, as yeah. well. Um, like, for instance, I was uh, I, I actually love that live from the Tokyo Dome. I think mm-hmm. it's I mean, the performance are fantastic. But if you listen to Pretty Woman in the chorus of that, Dave goes up a register a bit in the chorus, and it makes it sound more popular. I never heard him do that. Go back and listen to Pretty Woman when the chorus hits, right? Uh, stop and see. I mean, you just, and it's like, oh my God, that's how I hear it now all the time. I never heard him do that before, right? So he's always doing these little improv bits. And I would imagine that you, you, the first couple of times you got to do, you got to get used to a band and they got to get used to you a bit. But the rest of the time, he's so damn well prepared. If that band's dead on tight, he can step step in with them. And if his voice is sounding good, it's it's going to kill. Yeah, and all that totally contradicts the often stated thing of Dave can't sing, Dave doesn't have a voice, et cetera. It's just that he's entertaining himself doing things how he feels in the moment. Right. You know what's interesting? Go think of this. I mean, unless everybody's being considerably nice or very kind of being – what's the word I'm looking for? Being, I guess, neutral about it all. Yeah. But I've never read an interview. I've never heard. I've never read an interview, heard an interview, or hear any of the music, musicians play that he's played with say anything bad about his voice. Uh, no, no. In, in fact, the the latest wave of John Five Press, he talks about how Dave never sounded better on the album that they made in the 21st century, and. He sounds great on A Different Kind of Truth. And the Joe Rogan interview, he talks about going back to cross-training, a.k.a. vocal teaching. And uh, I have tried to get his vocal teacher on this podcast. I don't know if she's under an NDA or I'm just not that appealing. Um, We shall see. But the bottom line is he does actually study voice. And he has been studying voice since, I don't know, the late 70s or early 80s, which was the album where he started taking voice lessons. Any idea? Well, if I remember, didn't Templeman want him to get voice? lessons because you know at the start of recording the first album or somewhere along that time frame there i can't remember exactly but yeah uh, i think renoff's book mentions that uh because he was really green and just not a good vocalist in the beginning so i mean this is a guy who, who took maybe you know not all natural vocal ability and turned it into something but i was just thinking too i mean even as vitriolic is that a word as the the yeah. The post Dave leaving Van Halen, when the feuding and all that, when they rarely had anything, there was, I mean, Alex and, and Alex and Edward would slag Dave almost how many interviews. And I don't remember them ever saying his voice is shot. He couldn't, he can't sing anyway. Do you know what I mean? The only slagging related to that I can think of is he was talking about how Sammy had more vocal capabilities so he could write things in different keys. Oh, sure. That's a fact. That's everybody knows that. That's totally just because Sammy has an ultra amazing range doesn't mean that you're a bad singer because he can't do that same exact thing. It's just it's a different skill set. In fact, some people might say Sammy Hagar sings too high. It's right. on their ears. I mean, you when know? you think of it, I don't ever remember reading that like when they went on on tour with 5150 or whatever, anybody ever saying, oh, God, yeah, you know, the 84 tour, Dave's voice, it was hit or miss, it sucked. Whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just the only people who complain about Dave's voice are, the, are just everybody you would expect to complain about Dave's voice. It's just a common thing. It's just like there's, yeah. you know, there's there's some standards in life you're never going to get around. Death, taxes, which <laughs> version, you know, 
<laughs> you know, Gene and Paul and he, he whatever, you know, people are always on, you know, the whole kiss. Thing. I mean, there's just some people that will never, that's their belief. Fine. That's their opinion. And by all means, you know what? I've at a certain age, things are tough. I mean, Paul Stanley's just not singing the way he used to. I get it. He gave you 50 years of just unbelievably powerful performances. I mean, you're just going to age. Uh, but for the most part, you're there's people are going to have bad nights. They're going to miss stuff. But I've always maintained that Dave's vocals have never been as shitty or as bad as a lot of the online proletariat commentary at whatever yes. would, would be going on since life, since people got online. A hundred percent agreed. And I was at the first two Vegas shows in 2020. No, no, no. I was at the second and the third Vegas show of 2020. So I didn't see the first one. And I watched the clips of the the third show, my second show on YouTube. And it sounded terrible on the phone. And I, I was thinking like, that's not what it sounded like in the room at all. Yeah. And I was just reminded too. I mean, people don't realize this, but I remember on the Van Halen tour, one of the, one of the tours, whether it was, um, different kind of truth or whatever, maybe that there was a couple nights there where Dave was pretty unhappy. The fact that there was too much air conditioning in the room. Right. And, and, yeah. and even in a big arena. And I thought about this the other day and now I'm spacing. I was listening to a podcast the other day, it's a music podcast. And there was a singer that, Oh, I know what it was. I didn't never knew this, but on like the last time the who came around, mm-hmm. at, I think it may have been Madison square garden or one of the shows, Roger Daltrey admonished the crowd because he was there was too, there was too much weed smoking and it really affected his voice. People forget that these are not machines up there. You know, these are real human beings with vocal cords at the age of 60 plus, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, yeah. when you're 22, you could do three shots of Jack Daniels, do a couple rails, you can get <laughs> high, go out on stage, hit all the notes. When you're 60, 50, after how many hundreds of shows under your belt, you can't do that. So when guys, I mean, when, a guy like can still hold it together. Like I think Dave does still does it. Steven Tyler to a good degree, certainly yeah. Robin Zander. And then I don't know, Glenn Hughes must've sold his soul to the devil. Cause that guy, <laughs> Jesus, for all the, for all the stress that guy put on his body that, you know, in the eighties, that guy and nineties, he did half snorted half of Brazil and Bolivia for Christ's <laughs> sake. And yeah. his stuff with the dead daisies and his solo album, that guy, that's, that's a whole other stratosphere. I give these guys credit for still it's, I don't want to slag the guy, but let's put here. Here's one guy who's never been, I don't think ever was ever really that great, but like Vince Neal, yeah. Stephen Pierce, as much as I love Ratten and Motley Crue, especially Rat, always much rather would hear the vo- the, the vinyl, the live, uh, the studio stuff. I'm always used to it, but kind of disappointed. It's like, yeah, there was some studio trickery in there over those years. Yeah, I, I think on those that albums by those two guys on the lower end of the spectrum, you get a Vince Neil because he does not do anything to preserve himself. I don't I he's think you're the right. same 12 songs he's been doing since, you know, 92, 93, when he left Motley Crue. It's the same show he's been doing uh, aside from do I have a new album? Do I have two new songs from the album to slip in? OK, that's it. So he's doing the same exact song. So. There's that. And the highest end of the spectrum, you have Robin Zander, who's not only killing it, but singing everything in the original key as well. And Robin Zander, Glenn Hughes, you have your superhuman people. I'm not saying Dave is at that level. No, not at all. But 
he's great. I'm looking forward to these shows. When he says he's preparing and training, I'm expecting him to put the work in and we will report on that on a future episode. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go back one. Let me backtrack one bit and give Vince Neil some credit. First time I saw them on the theater paint tour, I was like, that's, he sounds pretty cool. I was very surprised on that first big reunion tour they did in what, 2005, I think. Yeah. Four or five. Yeah. He had taken care of himself. He looked good. He sounded real good. I don't know how much was backing tracks. I can never really tell half the time anyway. I'm probably three I'm probably three or four beers in anyway, but for the most part, I thought Vince sounded pretty good there. But I've seen plenty of stuff online where it's just like, oh man, especially his solo stuff. It's like maybe he would readily admit, yeah, I probably could have taken care of my voice a little bit better over the years. And probably Dave could too. You know what? Jack Daniels through the years and smoking and a lot of blow over the years, that's going to take a bit of its toll. So, ergo, vis-a-vis, E-G-I-E, whatever the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> I give Dave a little bit of more credit considering uh, as far as how his vocals have maintained through the years. And I expect him to sound pretty damn good for these shows because he trains like a freaking boxer. If those last five shows are his title fight before he retires, I think he's going to sound great. Now, there's going to be a segment of people who won't admit it no matter what, but I think he's going to sound great. He's going to sound so great. The reviews are going to be so great. Then he goes, I was kidding about the retirement thing. My next tour. And you go, oh. So you well, want yeah. him to be amazing, but not too amazing. Well, you know what the out is, don't you? The out is, I thought of this because I saw Gene Simmons on Ridiculousness last night, and I was cracking up. I'm not sure if it was a new or old one, because I've seen it on there before. But he's talking about the end of the road tour. He said, this is it, no more touring after this. That's the out. Because, yeah, we're not going to do any more big tours, but we can do residencies. Kiss is on the Kiss Cruise now. They already announced that there's going to be a Kiss Cruise next year. They did? Oh, I I'm pretty that. sure I saw that, like the opening night. They, they, they're, no one's ever said we're, gonna, we're never going to play. I mean, whether or not Kiss is still Four. wearing 70 pounds of gear, uh, right? Who knows? They might be doing it, but I could see them doing Residencies are so much easier for bands and so much more cost effective. They don't have to freaking haul four semi-trucks worth of shit around. You know, they're not jumping in and out of planes and buses or whatever else. It's hard on the voice and hard on anybody, especially when you're just a couple of years away from assisted living, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> so, I mean, a residency is a, definitely a way to go, right? It's It's more stationary and i could see kiss doing that they you know they said no yeah. more touring these big tour right that's and the i will be seeing kiss during my three weeks or so in vegas as well i will be seeing one of those shows i think we were oh, talking cool. about that off yeah mic. uh the, there's a lot of blue on that Ticketmaster <laughs> yeah that, man that's what i'll tell you i've always had a tough time being a big kiss fan i never wanted i remember seeing them and i'm like i just always you don't want to see your heroes slip at all, right? So it would bum me out when when I saw him on the Revenge Tour that there was still upper seating available in, like, Worcester, Mass, or wherever. So I'm like, damn it, this album's amazing. How come, you know, I mean, yeah. or if they need a third band to come out to go on the road. I mean, same with Dave. I remember a little late enough, I, we talked about this last episode, the Knickerbock Arena in Albany with, with uh, Cinderella and Extreme on the bill, half full. And I'm like, no! A little, this is an amazing record. Come on. And then I'm disappointed. He only did two songs off the record or whatever it was. And it was just, ah, yeah. I don't know what the answer is. It's uh, if you're hiring me to bring people in the door, 
I know how I would get people in the door for for Van Halen related content. I know how to do it. But if you're not paying me, I'm just going to sit here like a critic and be grouchy and still enjoy the show. So that's, <laughs> that's the plan for me. So, uh, you know, bring it back to, to Mike Musselman. Yes, we thank you. We clarify at the beginning if it's muscle man, muscle man. We clarify that yes. at the beginning of the interview. That's not a spoiler. Uh, he, he's got a bright future ahead of him. He's a well-networked, well-liked guy who put in the work, who trained under the right people, who can play a variety of genres. Keith Urban is another one of his big credits. So I don't think it's the last that we've heard from him. I don't think that he's going to spend the rest of his career going, former David Lee Roth drummer. No. He said something that he said something that really stood out to me. He said, you know, I never got a gig because of my Instagram page or because of a video or whatever. He got it because he puts the work in and people know that if you hire this guy, he's going to get the job done and, and he's got a great rep for it. Yes. So it was a great interview. Uh, He will not be the last former David Lee Roth band musician that we have on this podcast don't want to say more just yet more to follow on that end and nothing but yeah excellent all right well let's get after it let's get going to the michael musselman interview darren you're killing it thank you i love hearing these interviews and we got some more good stuff coming up no we're killing it (laughs) we're killing it we are the number one david lee rod podcast in the world (laughs) we are So uh, thank you for everyone for listening. Thanks for Steve for putting this all together. And, and if you are coming to a Vegas show, please tell us. Yeah. uh, Shoot us an email at, at the DLR cast at outlook.com. Darren's thinking of doing some man on the street interviews. (laughs) As as well. Uh, Yes. True. Yes. On gender right there. Yes. But but yeah, if we know you're there, (laughs) let's get you in there. Maybe we have a round table. I don't know. The sky's the limit. Well, it's always it's always going to be fun and, and interesting to find out what we got going on. Because, hell, sometimes we don't even know. Yeah, nothing but, yeah, what was that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing but that. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for taking the time, first and foremost. Are you dialing in from Los Angeles? Yes. Okay, an undisclosed Los Angeles location here, but you're off the road, correct? Correct. Okay, so my goal here is to learn about the greatness that's Mike's, that is, and I can't speak today, that is Mike Musselman. (laughs) Now, it's not Muscle Man, it's Musselman, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because on stage in Vegas, I think Muscle Man was said like five times during the show, so... (laughs) Well, you know, uh, yeah, you could say it either way. Muscle man is like if you wanted to make it make a point or an emphasis, but muscle man is muscle comma man, you know, that kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Fair. Well, I first learned about you from the Roth gig, but Keith Urban is another huge credit. The key is you're a steadily working drummer. Are you allowed to say what you're working on now or is it all under NDAs? No, I can say what I'm working on now. Everything's pretty loosey goose um, in the world that I've operated in so far as a professional. Um, there's a guitar player, composer, uh, band leader named Zach Tabori. 
Yes. And he's got his own thing going on. I, I met him while we were working with somebody else, a guy named Teo, and we wrote a song for Will Smith's kid, uh, Jaden. Mm-hmm. But Zach has his own band, and I'm, I guess I'm the drummer for it now. And uh, that's what we're doing. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Zach. That was like a probably a mid to late 2020 interview where the publicist, wow. here's the press release on this guy. And you look him up and you go, this guy's way too talented and mm-hmm. way too smart to be doing what he's doing, but he's mm-hmm. willing to take all the chances in the world. In other mm-hmm. words, if the right audience finds Zach, he is the next Zappa. That's my opinion. Uh, sure. Yeah. 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 I agree. Um, oh, do you remember the publicist's name? That uh, Deborah. Is oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know her. I don't know her. Okay. I thought we shared the same person. They, uh, they yeah. sent me another pitch. I, I'm looking at my screen to see. They just pitched me Blues Traveler again, uh, uh, like an hour ago. Oh, wow. I'd love to see Blues Traveler one day. Yeah, it, it'll be a three-hour show, but you know what? You'll see some virtuoso. <laughs> is, that, is that the thing? He just he just keeps going? Yeah, that's one of those bands where they negotiate for more time on stage. Uh, most bands were like, you want you want 75? Could we do 60? Cool. Yeah. Six, 60 yeah. plus an encore? Cool. And then Blues exactly. Traveler, if you said contractually you need three hours, they'll, they'll improvise the heck out of some harmonica solos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Now, something I like to find out about drummers, mm-hmm. there's the Bunny Carlos school of thought of, we want to do a tight 60 to 70 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then there's the blues travel thing of like, we love playing. It's the best part of the day. Where are you at? Can you play three hours if you need to? Um, you know, when I, if I were being paid, I would <laughs> love to. But if I'm in my practice room, as you know, drumming is a physical thing. So yes. it's, it's, I would need to break up those three hours. I'd, uh, playing drums, playing seriously, yes, I can do it, but I like to, I'd like to be able to do like an hour and half, an hour and 40 minutes where I'm in it and then goof off for the other part. I don't know blues travelers like I know the two famous songs and I've always thought like if I was in you know a a Van Halen or a David Lee Roth type band that would a three-hour set would kick my ass I would be taking ice baths every night but if I was in like a I don't know I don't want to blast any genre or artist but, but I feel like if I was in like a reggae band I yeah. could just play that beat for six hours straight i could just be in that just just something relaxed being an la man about town on the drums do you know stacy jones by any chance no he was in american hi-fi and veruca salt but he's been miley cyrus's drummer and matchbox 20s drummer he's everybody's drummer on the planet if they want a drummer and then this man he sings and plays lead and then he's a and r here i cracks me up that he started off in a reggae band before all oh did he yes 
Whoa. Which reggae band? It was something that happened when he was at Berkeley. Okay. I think, okay. It, I think it was a roommate, but you're a music school guy. So mm-hmm. do you have to fight those tendencies if you have a gig like Roth or Keith Urban, those mm-hmm. like habits that you get from going to a great music school? Like what you're asking, like try to unlearn or yes. just just go out there and pedal to the metal as opposed to like, well, this is how you're supposed to play the thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Thankfully, we'll, you know, we'll just use the DLR gig as a reference point for, uh, for everything, I guess. But thankfully, Alex, his drumming isn't like, no, I, for that gig, no, I didn't have to unlearn anything. Um, and the music school I went to was Musicians Institute. Mm-hmm. They teach the commercial side of music. They don't get, unless you like get a one-on-one lesson, they don't get, they don't get too into the weeds with <laughs> anything. They, 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 here's you know you're with 60 kids for the next year and a half two years and you all learn the same exact shit but it's to go out there and be a be a drummer and get the gigs do they uh because curriculums evolve in music schools over the years is there anything and this is a real question do they teach anything about being a good hang these days absolutely they do yeah oh totally and I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is my drum teacher, who I don't know if there's anything on the internet that, because I don't think I've done any interviews. Um, I studied under Greg Bissonette. Oh, wow. Okay. There's the Roth connection. So there'll, there'll be some connections and we can, we can get into how I met Greg and how that's the same person as how I got the gig. But um Greg Bissnett is the nicest guy on the planet. Mm-hmm. He remembers you. If you haven't seen him in seven years and you show up to the NAM convention and, oh, big hugs. Um, but he's the one who taught me, like, you don't want to be the diva or the asshole in the back of the van smoking a vape pen, choking everybody. You just, you want to be basically... Either you'll be a fun hang or like neutral. You're not anything here nor there. You know, you're just you're just a good guy. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, musicians institute they ne- there was never anything within the curriculum to say that. But all the teachers are gigging uh, professionals and. They, they, they take you aside and they'll be like, hey, you know, if you're going to get this gig, you, I think that uh, just work on your attitude or whatever. I went there about 10 years ago. I graduated 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a little foggy, but um, sure. that's the long winded way to say yes. So they, you learned- they do, no. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> well, 
I thought I knew what was going on with that Roth Vegas gig until <laughs> I taped an interview two weeks right. ago and I uncovered a, like a little bit of a mystery that I haven't heard anything about before that, that there was a band before you guys got mm -hmm. the gig mm -hmm. with Chris Griotti <laughs> on, <laughs> on guitar and Brett Tuggle put that band together. Mm -hmm. Then I think there was some, oh, well, we can't do these dates. Then he got mm -hmm. a new band, which you were part of. Mm -hmm. And then the band changed again and the band changed again personally. Well, there's no, there's no secret that like Dave is particular and has high standards. You mentioned Kane uh, in the email. Yeah. And I, I've known Kane. I grew up in LA and Kane has, Kane's dad, Rocket. Yes. Is a guitar player. Rocket works with, has worked with Brett, I think, I think on the Chris Isaac stuff i don't remember how they knew each other exactly but i was in a band with brett tuggle's son okay okay the, the worlds keep connecting this, right is, this is how it's all yes. connected i'm not just some random dude from the internet that they came across um it was just sort of in the making for many years but brett tuggle's son and i were in a band and we would always play shows with Kane's bands. They would were playing before Golden Voice took over the Roxy on Sunset. Yeah, we you could just go book a show there. You didn't have to be a Golden Voice artist. And so I was always playing with Kane. And then he was always like, his friends were like dating some of my friends, and I was always seeing him. And when when I found out that he was, I think he was the first drummer for this what those vegas shows were going to be yeah was so stoked i was like he's gonna nail it i love watching him he's so amazing he studied under greg bissonette as well wow you know? <laughs> yeah wow yeah. so so that what the story that he told was he had the gig they he checked the dates like can't do them mm -hmm. and when i mentioned brett putting the band together it was danny wagner on stage so is it that the music director also changed as part of it that Brett couldn't do the dates or didn't want to do the dates? You don't have to get specifics there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so love Danny. Um, Danny's been around a long time and he's a pro. Yeah. Danny came on, I think everything moved really fast. There was a lot of not musical chairs, but a lot of positions being taken and, and, and people coming in, not showing up the next day. We never knew what happened, but um, <laughs> Danny was supposed to be the drum tech. Okay. Cause to pause you right there, Danny, I think is a much better drummer than a keyboard player. And he's a great keyboard player. When I watch yeah. some of those warrant videos, right. keyboard behind this, like he's playing, I saw red. <laughs> and then he turns around to the drum set. He's great. He's great. I, I, we had a lot of fun. He's one of like we're just we all got along right away. Okay, that'll we'll save that conversation. So Danny was supposed to be a tech, and okay. and he's a multi instrumentalist. Yeah. And you know the world. We're like, I I'm a drummer, but if someone needs a drum tech, 
and the money is there. I'm now I'm a drum tech. And <laughs> yes. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go do that. So there was, I think what happened was that Dave wanted instead of just one guitar player, he wanted two. Yes. Yes. Rhythm and lead. And so Brett started playing guitar on most of the songs and then playing a Rhodes or, or you know, B3 organ. I got a dog. You'll hear it bark. Waldo. Waldo. Where's Waldo? Waldo. <laughs> That's not Waldo from the Hot for Teeth video, right? No, no, you're only the second, oh, you're only, not in any sarcastic way, you're only the second person to um, point that out. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? So Brett was switching between rhythm guitar and then keyboards when needed, like, um, uh, give me a second here. Um, the switching between guitar and keyboard. Oh, there, there's a long, long list of that. But I've right. never seen that in the Roth band before. No, I don't think. He, I I remember when Brian was the guitar player, and I was like, I was like thirteen. Relax. <laughs> I was like thirteen years old, and um, my Brett Tuggle's son was getting guitar lessons from Brian, but there was no keyboardist. It was drums, bass, yeah. tracks, yeah. And, and yeah, tracks and, and just blow them away. Play loud, play fast. Let's, let's do it. Um, and then I think, I think the, you know, Brett were, is like just getting older and this music requires a lot it's it demands a lot from your body yeah and we would rehearse four times a week five times a week like four or five hours just hitting it over and over and over and i think we wanted to keep brett fresh so it's like let's let's give the the rhythm guitar to brett let's have danny um he kind of he he was doing keyboards, but when he wasn't doing keyboards, he was playing a lot of synthesized bass. He was covering oh, okay. yeah. the low end with his left hand. If you see some of the shows, he's just pressing. He's pressing with one finger. He's going from note to note. And that makes sense on something like Just Like Paradise, which I believe is keyboard based on the recording. I get what you're saying. Right. right. Yeah, he would play keys on that for sure with some dialed in patch where we you know brett was able to get the actual sound from some old weird floppy disc that's been converted and now it's in his um keyboard his synth, his synth but yeah what was the question i don't even remember so so it all started with the shadow band that replaced the band and how brett went from oh, putting together right. the band to being the keyboardist and putting it together with Danny drum teching to somehow Brett being keyboard and guitar to somehow yes. Danny is on drum, uh, Danny's now on keyboards, not just drum teching. Yes, and, and 
what you just said was like four months. It wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't like one month of thing. That was like all of this, all of this shit happened. And Griotti was the original, that was like, it started there. And then Griotti got his buddy and bandmate, Ryan Wheeler. And then uh, Jerry, the manager, called Brett, said, come, come be the boss of these youngins. Because I think Griotti had worked with this guy named Tom Sorowski yes. at Henson Studios. And they were just, they remembered him from some random session and said, he's the guy. He's the guy. Griotti's the guy. He still is the guy, in my opinion. Yeah, young and, blood and all that. Writing hits for other yeah. people. Totally right. Get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they and Griotti knows Kane, and they tried Kane out, and then that didn't happen. And so Brett, Brett, I went to Brett's son. His son is Matt Tuggle, who's a, he's an audio engineer. Um, I forgot who he works for now, but he's a professional. He's, he used to work at Henson for like seven years. Um, Brett's son was having an engagement party and I saw Brett there and Brett said, Mikey, what's going on with you? What's, what's up? And I said, I have a show in Austin, Texas. And then I, I'm completely free. I think that was like 2018 or something. Mm-hmm. And and then Brett goes, all right, well, look at, look out in your email. I'm going to email you some stuff. And I, I got to pause you there. 2018. So the Vegas residency was long in the works. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They, email in 2018. Well, yeah. So Brett sends me an email and says, learn these songs. And it's hot for teacher. And it's uh, running with the devil. And it. it so you get this list of songs to, to learn. Get this list of songs and, and, you know, Brett has worked with everybody and, you know, Fleetwood Mac was going through some changes because they're kicking out Lindsay yeah. Buckingham and they're getting uh, Mike Campbell in there and Brett and Lindsay are closer than Brett is with anybody else. So Brett kind of just, I think he was asked to like not, hang around because there's some there's some there's anyway i can't talk about that but yeah um i thought brett was gonna say hey Lindsay's going on tour and that would have that would have blown my mind just as well but he sends me hot for teacher and i immediately know holy shit dave is going out it's happening and um I meet with Griotti and Ryan Wheeler in a, in a rehearsal, you know, a, a you know, pay by the hour rehearsal space in Echo Park. Hmm. And as I'm setting up, I set up a China symbol. And for some weird reason, it triggers Ryan Wheeler to play King Crimson. I forgot what the song was called, but it's from the album Red. Yeah. And I grew up listening to that shit, you know, and I hit my China on accident while I'm setting it up and he goes right into the riff 
and I just go in with him and I play until I can't remember what the hell happens next. And Ryan looked up at Griotti and just went, he's got the gig. <laughs> and, you know, we played hard for teacher and running with the devil and all that shit. And, and then we rehearsed with Brett Griotti and Ryan for like three weeks, we did not see Dave at all. Dave just wanted us to just grind it out and get get together as a unit to just kind of like his thought process behind the Edom and Smile crew, the, the Billy Sheehan, Steve Vai, Bissonette, just make them sound like they've been together for 10 years when it's really been six months. So that that's that's how it started. And it, uh, it shape-shifted and evolved in many ways. Since I mean, there was three guitar players on stage at one point. Yes, that was going to be my, that was like two topics ahead. When okay. he was first hyping up this Vegas residency, he said something like, there's going to be three guitarists on stage, uh-huh. two keyboardists, uh-huh. and it's going to be a rotating thing of 30 plus songs from throughout the career. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned... Hot for Teacher was the first thing you had to learn. And you guys did not play Hot for Teacher in the, on that run. Whereas yeah. when I saw him live with Brian Young a bunch of times in the early 2000s, that was the opening song every single night. Right. So it sounds like everything changed. The lineup, the setup, the number of people that would be in the band, etc. Yes. And it was all, if I had to guess what my old boss Dave was thinking it's probably he's just looking for perfection and he's like what is the what is it going to be what is going to be the right combo because I'm at I'm at this point in my career I'm in my 60s yeah am I gonna am I gonna be doing splits on stage anymore he wants it to what what is it now and it still can be perfect so yeah we so we had a guitar player um who's more of like a keith uh richards kind of guy but he's so fucking cool his name's andrew martin and he's an amazing um guitar player and he 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 worked with griotti on a lot of stuff and so there there was one friends and family show where it was Brett doing keys and guitar, Andrew doing guitar, Chris Griotti doing guitar, and then Ryan and I doing our thing. Mm -hmm. It was was wild. It was a wild show. Wow. So everything changed over time. But did you have to learn like 30 to 40 songs? Was that part initially true that it was going to be a revolving set list? Totally. It was going to be a revolving set list. I don't think we got up to 30. We might have got up to 21 songs. I'm making that number up, but 30 seems like a lot. But he, you know, Dave really, when it came to the shows, like we would write the set list like day of, Mm -hmm. you know, we would sit us all together and we would eat some tacos and say, he'd just go, what do you guys want to play? And we would, cause we're all fans. Yeah. We're, we're fans of this, this legend that we're with. And he's just asking us, what do you guys want to do? 
And so we're like, Tobacco Road, what, you know, we're shouting out some deep cuts from the solo stuff or, um, or from the Dave stuff or the Van Halen stuff. Um, and he would be like, all right. And he would just be like, just shout out the song. I'll go with it. You know, he'll know it. You know, you'll know the song when it starts. He had some things that we did because I obviously we did Big Train and that was yeah. something he really wanted to play. He made it. He made us make sure we knew Big Train. I should have taken my notes out because we would have these meetings. We'd go to his house and we'd write out all this stuff like it's a, you know, a, a business that, you know, oh, get on that. Get on this. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Yeah, Big Train was, it sounded great both of the nights I saw the tour. And it was a total surprise because that album, Your Filthy Little Mouth, maybe his least selling album of all the Warner stuff, maybe, in the, I don't know how that compares to DLR band. But for example, from the DLR band, at least Slam Dunk was a single that people knew per se. So that was an obscure, awesome song. And then otherwise, it was pretty much the greatest hits of Dave that show. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was one other, I'm going to just give it a quick little Google uh, that we were trying to get together. And I don't know why we'd never played it. David Lee Roth. Um, let me know if you know it. Let's see here. Albums. Well, Yankee Rose was a big hit. I know he was doing that in the two. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I don't know if anybody you've interviewed yet has said this. When what he said about um, Yankee Rose, he said um, uh, 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 he thought it was too much of a novelty song. He thought it was um, you could only play that song on the Fourth of July. Yeah. Okay, so the, okay, I'm looking at a song. We learned She's My Machine from Your Filthy Little Mouth. Yeah, wow, that's a surprising one. It, it was, it was, it, it was surprising and it was actually kind of like a, not your typical song structure. If I remember correctly, I feel like that song took a little bit more energy or brain power for me to remember everything that's happening. Yeah, um, and what I'm starting to, a mystery that has also been needed to be unraveled is that he started recording that song with Bob Ezrin, even though the album was done with Bob Rock. Uh, and then oh. that wasn't on that album. It was on the following album, which he did with Nile Rodgers. So I think that is a significant song to him if it's when it survived like three producers, basically. That's right. Yeah. Right. Wow. So yeah, that and that's yeah, those are the only two from that that album that we, we we did. Did you guys work on a little ain't enough? No. Hmm. Uh, we did we play? I kind of forgot. Did we play? Somebody get me a doctor. I believe you did. I know he he was doing okay. that in the two thousand stores. That and beautiful girls. I think were the two like non hits staples that you did. I think D, did he do do DOA? No, in the two thousands he was doing DOA. Well, yeah, we didn't do DOA. So my we, next question related to all that is mm -hmm. you were a fan of the catalog per se, but how much of it did you know versus you had to learn? In other words, 
you could hear hot for teacher in your head, but did you fully know how to play it and you knew all the intricacies beforehand? Only, uh, I knew I could kind of make up the intro <laughs> because every drummer that you look up online does their own thing. Yeah. And, but, but since I had Greg Bissonette as a teacher, he thought it was something I should know, how to do a shuffle on your feet. Since I got the gig, I just kept saying to my dad, I just kept saying something like, like if you're a drummer, you should just, just learn hot for teacher, just in case, you know, like you get the call. It's just one of those things you should know. And many cover bands do it. Like that's a, a special moment in a night when a cover band like, like Steel Panther pull it <laughs> off, even though I'm not, they don't pull it off, they nail it. Yeah. You just go, fuck yeah, we're not just doing, you know, um, pour some sugar on me. We're going to do something serious here. Speaking of Steel Panther and Hot for Teacher, I saw a video yeah. of Nuno Bedingcourt coming up and playing that on the drums. And you go, mm -hmm. wait, Nuno plays drums, A. B, Nuno's that good of a drummer. C, he just walked up with no practice up to a kid and played Hot for Teacher. Right. You know... That's pretty crazy. I, I, he, wow. I didn't know. When was this? I think it was still in the LA House of Blues era. So it's okay. like when they're seven still, years ago. Right, right, right. I used to go there. I don't know. If, I don't think I'll get anybody in trouble, but I used to go there <laughs> when I was underage because of Brett Tuggle. It's my <laughs> best friend's dad. And we wanted to go. And so Brett would call the lead singer and be like my kids come and put them on the list and we would get snuck in there and, and hide in the like top corner yeah and um we loved it I, I was friends with someone who would always we'd go there every monday night this this guy he his name is ryan cabrera oh yeah 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 didn't you we would drum for there. ryan i did play drums for ryan yeah. i oh, knew yeah yeah I, did, I knew yeah. uh, six drummers before you was a guy from Long Island that I came up in the punk scene with. Who, oh in uh, what was his big hit? On the way down was yeah. He was the drummer circa on the way down. Mm -hmm. and yeah, then you got him on the way up. Uh, well, you know what? <laughs> that, that single on the way down, the record. I think okay. I, I might have to pause this and no take problem. my out no rush I'm okay um but i will say making all these crazy connections the reason why come here come here come here give me a kiss come here come here up 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 this there he is um the reason why i started playing with ryan is my friend was dating him and he found out that my drum teacher was Greg Bissonette and the drummer on, on the way down is Greg Bissonette. Wow. Okay. It was just another session to Greg, you know, checks in the mail. And then, but, but I, I went up to Ryan. I was like, do you know Greg Bissonette? And I don't know if you know, but this is about Ryan Cabrera, but like 
he made one of the nice or not nice one of the fun parts of his show is that he would take off his guitar and he'd go do a drum solo you know like justin bieber did that yeah 10 years later he would get behind a purple kit and start doing his thing um but that's how ryan and i bonded was um greg i had no so what i keep the recurring theme that i keep <laughs> hearing here is yeah. Not just Greg and Brett having their like hands and everything, but everyone liking these guys, hence uh -huh. them always working. Yes. Yeah. Now, while I've interviewed Greg before, them uh -huh. being super under the radar. So in other words, they're the guys who are always working, but you don't know that they're always working. Yes. And they're not making any effort for you to know that they're always working. They're too busy. <laughs> And you know, Greg, Greg's been with Ringo fucking star for 12 years, 15 years. And what's so funny to me, okay, this is, this has to do with like unlearning the music school stuff Yeah, is that you watch Greg play for Ringo, even though Greg worships the Beatles, he still has notes on stage. If you watch Greg Bissonette, there's a little music stand. He's right. played these songs a million times and he's flipping through his notes. The next song comes up. Here's the, oh, four bar intro. Got it. Okay. And, he, and he, he has notes on stage. So he never stops learning as well. Wow. Totally. Well, he told me for the Dave gig, I, I think it's in interviews too. He, he hid his notes on his toms. He would put the, the transcriptions for what he had to do on his toms and he just wouldn't play those two toms and he can, and, and Dave never saw that he was reading music. A similar story I heard related to that, Ron Wixo, who was in the band, I think 93, 94, he's now with Steve Miller. I think he played with Rocket in a band or two um, related to Greg Raleigh. So another, you know, journeyman who's played with everyone, but is under the radar, Ron Wixo. Right. He was telling a story how I think Dave wanted to put Dance the Night Away back into the set and mm -hmm. he didn't fully know it. So he put the notes and I think he taped it to the toms and mm -hmm. Dave saw it and got pissed. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I, I've got, my ass has gotten saved by other people because uh, Ryan Wheeler, who, who became yeah. the MD, the de facto MD, um, after Brett had left, and oh. I had I had taken a piece of tape, I don't know, white gaff tape or whatever yeah. the fuck it was, but I wrote on the white gaff tape because Ryan is on my right, where the floor tom would yes. be for a right-handed setup and i wrote on a piece of tape hey ryan fuck you and so i always want because i've always wanted to have fun on stage and i think before the vegas show i got on my kit after or for a sound check and it was gone and ryan's like I, I, ryan was like i took it off because if dave saw that he he'd, he'd have a problem with it yeah. Well, you just answered one of my questions. I always was under the impression that Al Estrada was the MD. So Ryan was the MD who took over. Okay. 
Right. Well, okay. Oh, I forgot all about Al. Um, Ryan, what, what happened was Dave just pointed to him and said, you're in charge. And what that meant was make sure the guitars are in tune. They're loud enough. My vocals sound a specific way because we would show up two or three hours before a rehearsal and make sure that everything is perfect before Dave gets in there. Yeah. And that was Ryan's job. And then he kind of took on some more responsibilities, um, I guess, behind the scenes, working with Dave's engineer, who's no longer, I don't think he works for him anymore, but I already mentioned his name, Tom Sarowski. They would make sure like the harmonicas are in the right. We put like four harmonicas on the drum risers in like uh, cup holders so he can be on any side of the stage and grab the right harmonica. Um, you know, those sorts of things. We just wanted to make sure that he can get on there and do anything. Um, but that was up that shit. All of that shit was up to Ryan. Was to make sure Todd, it was Todd Jensen, the former bass player, still handling his assistant kind of work? I don't think I ever met anyone named Todd. Okay, so I have to say the David Lee Roth organization is almost as secretive and hidden as ACDC. It's just basically Van Halen, ACDC. I don't know if anyone else is as shrouded in mystery. Like we, we could figure out who Kiss's guitar techs are. Uh-huh. You know, anyone with a little Googling be like, okay, who's Iggy Pop's personal assistant? Da, 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 da. Okay, who's Madonna's drum tech? Uh, we yeah. have no idea uh the, these upcoming vegas shows which i'm going to with my wife we have no idea uh what songs are being played mm -hmm. is there an opener is it the same exact show that we saw in early 2020 are yeah. there special guests <laughs> we have i wonder what the philosophy or i you know i don't even know if to be honest i don't even know if that's on purpose where they go someone says in the camp, keep it a secret, or, or that's just the way they roll, where it's like, book the show, the people will come. Yeah. Why do we have to even promote it? It's fucking David Lee Roth. And especially after Eddie dying. Yeah. Holy shit. We're, it's, this is it, guys. The people that are left standing, it's, you know, like the Beatles. You only have two people to go see two people in pete best uh you have your couple of people <laughs> yes, correct i'm in a bowling league with um a singer songwriter and an actor and the actor's dad but we call ourselves the beatles and i'm like the new guy they've been doing this for three years or something like that and they all have like george paul ringo and um I'm, I'm the new guy. So I, I had, I was like, okay, there's only one other beetle because there's five bowlers and I had to be Pete Best. But my jersey says best on it, even yeah. though I'm not the best bowler. Anyway, anyway, that was it. As long as it doesn't say, is it Jimmy McNichol? Is that the, the guy who replaced, do you know about this guy? No. 
I think Ringo had to get his tonsils out or his appendix out or something like that in 64. And they had this guy who just toured with the Beatles for a couple of weeks. And I think his name is Jimmy McNichol. So it's kind of like, well, Ringo's home. We need a drummer. We're not canceling. He did these shows. And then Ringo comes back and he has to go back to normal life. Honestly, that's fine. I'd do it. I'd be the Jimmy McNichol. I'm pretty sure it's M-A-C McNichol. McNichol. Okay. What, whatever it is, back to you here. You did the Roth gig. Uh-huh. That was a couple of months of your life. Zach yeah. Tavori, Keith Urban. So uh-huh. the dude's got some credits right here. <laughs> you know, I, I, the first thing that comes to mind in response to that is, A, don't be the asshole. But B, <laughs> I guess no particular order either, but is I never got a gig from having a cool website or a cool Instagram, everybody that I've played with or for is because I have good relationships with people. They go, oh, is Muscleman, is he still, what's he doing? And let's bring him out on the road if he's not busy, you know? And that, that's how I just keep that going. And because I grew up in LA, so everyone kind of knows each other and they've all, we all tried to pursue big dreams and shoot for the stars. So they use me on my, on their projects and I use them on mine. And it's just that revolving door. Having gotten to know a lot of Sideman through my past in management and interviewing people and all that i have some drummers that are you know friends that are la based and i i'm not i'm not asking for a weird name drop per se but there's certain people that you mm-hmm. trade gigs that you have your sub gig like oh that person can't do it i mm. assume you have your sub thing like ah, oh, they can't do it i'll take that on mm. let me think there's no one that comes to mind right away because i, I seriously haven't played Waldo, I haven't played a show since New Hampshire with Dave and Kitts. I haven't played a single show. I've recorded, as I said, with my friends, mm-hmm. but I haven't, I haven't played a show, so I haven't, I just don't even remember. Um, who would I call if I couldn't do it? Well, actually, I was with a band named Fig's Vision. Yeah. And you know, this whole weird world of, the, the 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 fucking aging rockers and their children their offspring and so um the keyboardist in fig's vision is is gunner six nikki's oh yeah and we've been in a band i wasn't the original member i joined the, you know halfway through their journey but um fig's vision had a residency in la that's the name of the band and I called, I couldn't make it because of the Dave stuff. And I called Zach Tabori. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a Danny Wagner, if you will. And, and I, and I sat with him and I taught him the stuff and he played the gig. Um, I would call Zach, but Zach, you know, we're at this age where like, we can't just like work for the drink tickets. Yes. You know, sometimes you you do it because you love the people, but uh, I would call Zach. I don't know. I don't know. I have musician friends. I don't know. Uh, who would I call? Who would I name drop? 
in my, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can't think of anybody. I usually take the gig. I'm pretty available. <laughs> well, there you go. And uh, best place to find you, to contact you, to hire you, because we want to hire the muscle comma man. Uh-huh. Is it the Instagram or is there a best way to find you? I don't have a website. I just have the Instagram. It's free. It's easy. There's some videos on there. You see my credits. You know my name. It, it, I would say Muscleman Drums on Instagram. That's where I'm at. I, I'm pretty laid back. I'm not someone trying to claw my way to be the next Tony Royster Jr., if you know who that is. Yes. And he's, a, you know, but he... He's got all the gigs and he's amazing. I, I just kind of cruise along. So I'm there if you want to find me.